Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Hey, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for coming today. My name is Duffy Robbins. Great to be back here at FaithBridge, and thank you for, for being here. Those of you who are here in Center Courts East and West, uh, the Klein campus, those of you who are watching from uh, the Woodlands, we're glad you are with us and worshiping here today. And, and those of you who are uh, joining us online, uh, fantastic to have you. We're glad you're here. Please, when the service is over, uh, go friend me on Facebook. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's good. Summer is, uh, summer is the season for uh, Hollywood blockbusters. How many of you have been to a movie this summer? Let's see a show of hands. Okay, yeah, good on you. Uh, how about, uh, let's do a quick survey. How many of you have gone to see uh, Inside Out? Anybody see Inside Out? Okay, great, great. Uh, how, about, um, how about the new Schwarzenegger? Uh, uh, anybody seen Terminator yet? Anybody seen Terminator? Yeah, all right, yeah, it's rated R. Uh, yeah, uh, just maybe have a quick word of prayer. But uh, how, about, um, how about Ant-Man? Who saw Ant-Man? Okay. All right, uh, has, has, I know Mission Impossible only came out Friday. Has anybody already seen? You saw Tom Cruise, he's hot. Uh, how about, uh, how about uh, Jurassic World? Did anybody see? Yeah, Jurassic. I mean, you know what? There's something pretty awesome about uh, the combination of popcorn, air conditioning, 3D glasses, and, and, and prehistoric uh, creatures uh, consuming our fellow human beings. Uh, I, I just find it a, a blessing. You know, I, I remember as a youth pastor, um, I learned very, very early in the game that, that teenagers, you know, love movies. That's, it's a huge part of teenage life. And, and, and so one summer I did an entire Bible study series, 10 weeks, um, that we called summer blockbusters. And, and I took 10 different uh, biblical narratives and what we did each week was we coupled the Bible study with uh, a popular Hollywood film. So, so, you know, like we did Zacchaeus, and that was Get Shorty. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, Noah was Waterworld, and the raising of Lazarus uh, was Dead Man Walking. Uh, and um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, I remember, remember Acts chapter 5, this, this uh, husband and wife who uh, each in turn lie to God, and they're struck down dead. Uh, we, 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 uh, for that one, we used dumb and dumber. Uh, and, and, uh, my favorite was, uh, my favorite was actually, uh, you remember the guy in scripture in the gospels who was possessed by so many demons. He said, uh, my name is Legion for we are many. Um, that one, uh, we did 101 damnations, but, but the idea I, I, I think, uh, was when we got down to the final episode, uh, we we're going to um, look at the passage of Scripture that we're going to explore this morning. Uh, there was absolutely no debate about which movie title we would use. It had to be Fatal Attraction. Fatal Attraction. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, you just... Shoot your hand up in the air. We're going to make sure that you have one if you wish to have one. These uh, kind folks are circulating. Just put your hand up and make sure that you get a Bible during the service. Let me just say, too, as they're making their way uh, around, that uh, we have this little postscript podcast thing. Uh, in your bulletin on the uh, second page there inside, there's information. If you have a question uh, or comment about anything I say today, 
please, please, uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'd, we'd love to have you uh, join the conversation. Second Samuel chapter 11. Let's begin in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Well, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and, and wash your feet. This is um, a, sort of a Hebraic euphemism. It, it means to lay with your wife. It means to uh, relax with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Let's jump to verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah, the Hittite, also died. Fast forward to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah, of course this is Bathsheba, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. If you've heard of David even a little bit, uh, you probably know that his story is bookended, it's marked uh, by two key battles. Um, one was his epic uh, showdown with Goliath, the giant industrial strength bully from Gath, the champion of the Philistines. The other was his struggle with lust. David uh, had a weakness for women. He was actually the very first king of Israel to have concubines. And if, if the face of his first battle was the face of a, a, a cruel, a brutish tyrant, um, the face of his second battle was the lovely face of this innocent young maiden named Bathsheba. What makes this narrative, I think, so shocking is that we all know when the Goliath battle ended, Goliath was on the ground, David was standing tall in victory. But from what we've seen here this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that when the Bathsheba battle was over, it's David who is face down, broken, weakened, and humiliated by defeat. And frankly, uh, to be honest, in some ways, uh, it's a little surprising, isn't it, to see in the Bible 
uh, such a, a complete failure of a man uh, that most of us have come to embrace as one of Scripture's greatest heroes. It's, it's a story that, frankly, it's a little bit hard to hear. Uh, It's like finding out that your, you know, a life coach can't hold down a job, uh, you know, or or, or that your fitness instructor was caught eating a donut. It it just feels like a little bit of a betrayal. You know, we love the the bravery of David's bold stand against Goliath. We tell it and retell it to our children in vacation Bible school and and in Sunday school and on youth retreats. Um, The story of Bathsheba, not so much. Uh, you, you, you can go months uh, without hearing a children's sermon on David and Bathsheba. Uh, you know, hi, boys and girls. Can you say adultery? Uh, it, it, uh, it, it, the, uh, yeah, you, you know, the, the, the demand for uh, David and Bathsheba flannel graphs is extremely weak. Uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and David and Bathsheba puppet shows generally considered just a bad idea. Uh, but, but having said that, having said that, it might be that one of, the, one of the greatest proofs of the reliability and the trustworthiness of Scripture is, in fact, the uncanny, unflinching honesty with which its heroes are portrayed. You know, Alexander the Great once had uh, a portrait done of himself, which uh, had his face posed in his hands as if he were you know, in deep thought. But in actuality, uh, Alexander chose the pose to, to cover an ugly facial scar he gained in battle. The Bible includes no such cover-ups. You, you, you don't get airbrushed heroes in, in God's word. People who are sterilized to kind of fit our stereotype of what religious people are supposed to look like, uh, sanitized to sort of fit our image of, of sainthood. It's real life, real faith. Um, and, and, and we ought to be encouraged by that, I think. First of all, it says something uh, persuasive and convincing about the trustworthiness, the reliability of Scripture. But secondly, it, it says something, I think, pretty encouraging about the God we meet in this reliable Scripture. Now, this is a God who writes stories in the lives of normal, flawed broken people just like us. This morning, we're going to look at this this honest, ugly, unflattering picture of David because it's a story that can teach us some vivid lessons about the true nature of sin and the way it works in our everyday lives. And we don't have to read very far in this uh, narrative to realize that this is not just a story about David, is it? This This is a story about us. This is a story about me. This is a story uh, about you. If people like David, the giant killer, the, the psalm singer, the, 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 the battlefield strategist, the man after God's own heart, if people like David can face this kind of defeat, this kind of tragedy, then surely it can happen to people just like us sitting here uh, this morning. Even people who pray hard, sing loud, worship well, experience vividly the presence of God, people just like us can find ourselves in the depths of darkness and defeat. The question is, how does that happen? How does it happen? Uh, How is it that that someone falls from the heights uh, of a Goliath chapter to the depths of a Bathsheba 
chapter. What, what we're going to observe this morning is, uh, is that it happens for at least three reasons. Three reasons. The first one is this. One of the reasons that we see someone go from Goliath joy to Bathsheba despair and defeat is because sin seduces us. Sin seduces us. It woos us and wows us a little bit at a time. Uh, some of you remember the poet Shel Silverstein. Uh, several years ago, he wrote a children's poem that was later put to music by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, and uh, it's, it became a popular children's song. You probably know it. It's called, I'm Being Swallowed by a Boa Constrictor. Uh, and, and, and I'm not going to sing it this morning, uh, but let me, just, uh, let me just recite the words of his poem. Uh, I'm being swallowed by a boa constrictor. I'm being swallowed by a boa constrictor. I'm being swallowed by a boa constrictor, and I don't like it very much. Uh, I, I, oh, no, he swallowed my toe. Feel free to join in. Oh, me, he swallowed my knee. Oh, fiddle. He's up to my middle. Oh, heck, he swallowed my neck. Oh, dread, he's up to my... And that's where the song ends, right? What a wonderful children's song. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just a beautiful lullaby, uh, a sweet song about our children being swallowed whole by a snake. Uh, I mean... Uh, you know, it would be like singing a song to your children. Mommy disciplined us with a taser. It, 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 it just funny the songs that we use, you know. But one of the interesting elements of the song is that, is that it offers us a, a picture for the way sin works in our lives. Sin very, very seldom takes us in one big gulp. It often happens one little nibble at a time. Let's go back to the text a minute. Go to verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is not this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Actually, let's just stop there for a minute, because, because we need to notice something. We need to notice that this story, as ugly as it gets later on, uh, starts actually in a place that seems pretty innocent, doesn't it? I mean, soon enough, it becomes R-rated, but at this point, it's still pretty much G. No big scandal, no shocking crime, no, no secret plot. It begins innocent enough on a spring afternoon, verse 1. David is walking on the roof of the palace. Nothing necessarily evil about that. And, and yes, Sure, the rest of the army is off at war. This is, after all, pretty routine for the spring of the year. David's men are out in the field uh, finishing mop-up uh, operations to rid the land uh, of the Ammonites. And okay, it's a little bit odd that uh, David stays behind uh, when the rest of the men are in the field. But, but for crying out loud, it was David who commandeered uh, the victory over the Ammonites in the first place, right? Uh, you go back and read about that in chapter 10. It was his daring battle strategy that got them here. It, it, isn't he entitled? Isn't he entitled 
to a little uh, me time. And, and it is really his fault standing there, perhaps looking out over this beautiful city that he happens only by accident to see a beautiful woman taking a, a, a bath. I mean, he certainly can't be blamed for that. I mean, good grief. Uh, kings don't make rules about where women can bathe. And, 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 and is it, after all, such a crime to admire uh, a pretty girl? Uh, even asking her name, even asking her name doesn't seem so uh, blatantly evil. After all, that's just curiosity, right? That's just going to the guidebook to find out the precise name of this flower. Uh, that just going online to kind of, you know, find out about an old classmate. You know, where are they now? There's nothing sinister about curiosity. Except this. Except this. Little by little, we see it, don't we? David is being swallowed by a boa constrictor called sin. David is being seduced into the arms of a sin that will too soon move from, from teasing to squeezing to choking off of life itself. That's the way sin works. It is seductive. Little by little, it consumes us. I wonder how many of us, even here this morning, have found ourselves in a very, very similar story. You know, we make little concessions in our walk with God. We, we take little tiny shortcuts. We, we tell small, harmless lies. We surrender to self-declared uh, entitlements. We savor the, the sweet, uh, sinful treats, all the while excusing ourselves from not being really evil, you know, like, 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 like some people, or, or maybe even congratulating ourselves, right? Because, because, you know, we're not some kind of religious, uh, you know, holier than thou uh, prude. Before we know it, before we know it, we're up to our neck in sin. How did we get here? Men and women, let's be warned this morning. Sin is very opportunistic and very, very patient. Give it an inch and it will take it. That's why Peter warns us in First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's important to remember, before sin pounces on us, it creeps up on us. Sin, sin is seductive. It's seductive. And then once it sinks its teeth into us, it won't easily let go. That, that, that's our second observation about sin. That, that first of all, it seduces us. It seduces us to sin. And then it induces us to sin some more. It induces us to sin some more. You know, one of the major lessons I think of this episode in David's life is this. The primary consequence of sin is usually more sin. The primary consequence of sin is usually more sin. Uh, maybe you're a, a, a nail biter like me or, or, or a, a chain smoker or a fast driver or a Facebook addict or a, a potty mouth or a backseat driver or a, a chronic remote control channel changer. You know, the, the problem with habits, and we all know this, the problem with habits is not they're hard to break. They're hard to break. Trust me. I've experienced, this summer, I experienced this firsthand in a vivid incident. Um, 
back in late May, early June, I had several speaking engagements down in New Zealand. And as you probably know, in uh, New Zealand, drivers drive on the wrong side of the road, right? So, so I mean, literally the entire time I'm there, holy cow, it feels like I'm in New Jersey. But, but, uh, but uh, they, they, you, you understand what I mean. Like we, we drive on the right and they drive on the left. <clears throat> well, anyway, on my first morning in the country, my first morning, uh, I'm leaving my hotel in Auckland. And, and even though I'm reminding myself about this, I'm trying to, you know, be conscious of it. I turn out of the hotel parking lot onto Queen Street, which is the main artery in downtown uh, Auckland, a divided road. And I turn the wrong way. I turn right out of the parking lot. Well, immediately, um, it's clear that something is wrong. Uh, that that, that, that uh, people are driving their cars at me uh, with expressions of, of confusion and panic. Uh, in fact, I was telling some of my friends in New Zealand about this little uh, incident. They said, well, did they look mad? I said, no, they didn't really look mad. Uh, you know, the, I mean, honestly, if somebody's barreling at you in a car, I don't honestly think, especially when there's a median that traps both of you on your current course, your, your first thought is, is not, I don't think, instinctively anger. You're not going, ah, you've disappointed me. You know, this, this is going to put a strain on our relationship. Your first thought is just, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And, and, and that's pretty much what I saw on the faces uh, coming at me. So I realized, holy cow, uh, that, that's not right. And, and I've got to turn around. So I, I speed up to uh, where there's a break uh, in, in the median, and I reverse direction. And the problem is, instead of doing a tight U-turn, and remaining on the same side of the median so that now I would be actually moving with the flow of traffic. I cut through the median, did a perfect 180, so that now I was going the wrong way, the other direction. <laughs> you know, on the other side of the median, threatening drivers on that side of the road. And it was, I mean, to make a long story short, I, I very quickly did another U-turn this time, stayed on the correct side of the median, drove back to the hotel and put on some dry pants. But, but here was what was intriguing. No, actually, you know what I did? I literally, I remember I just pulled over and I just started laughing. Part of it was the, the exhilaration of, of being alive. But, but, but part of it, I just thought, isn't that amazing? The power of habits the power of these patterns in our lives. They're learned patterns. I mean, as much as I intended to go in the right direction, this pattern of life that I've grown used to kept steering me in the wrong direction. Habits are hard to break and sinful patterns become very, very much like that. What becomes clear in this text, 2 Samuel chapter 11, especially when we have word of Bathsheba's pregnancy, is that David realizes soon enough that, that he might be on a collision course, that, that his story is moving in the wrong direction. What's stunning is that he never seriously tries to turn around. Even when he does try to maneuver, he, he just crashes into something or, or, or someone else. Uh, let's go back for just a minute. Look at the text, verse 5. Let's begin in verse 5. Quick recap. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, you can see there David discovers he's fathered a child, but instead of doing a U-turn right then and there and, and, and turning around and coming clean, 
he devises uh, this elaborate cover-up plan that involves bringing Bathsheba's husband, uh, Uriah, back home from the front lines with the idea that, well, of course, Uriah, as soon as he gets home, he's going to go to bed, sleep with his wife. So when the child is born, uh, no one will be the wiser. Everyone will think it is Uriah's own child. Of course, the, fa- the plan backfires. Uh, it turns out Uriah is a man of honor. And, and, and when he returns home, he refuses to sleep with his wife when his own men are still out there on the field of battle. Uh, he chooses instead to sleep on the palace porch. And, and, and when, when David asks him about this, uh, we read in verse 11, uh, Uriah says, well, the ark and, and Israel and, and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and allow my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So still unwilling to turn around, David tries that night to get Uriah drunk, thinking that maybe that will sort of numb his, his conscience a bit. But, but as you probably know, that doesn't work either. So David's guilt drives him into even further desperation. He, he decides to send a note to Joab actually delivered by Uriah with instructions that, that uh, Uriah and his men are to be placed on the front lines of battle where the fighting is the most fierce in the hopes that there Uriah will die in combat along with his men. So even if it means killing in cold-blooded fashion one of his most faithful, most loyal officers, David is hell-bent to cover his rear and cover up his sin. So here we have this guy think about it, who has committed adultery. He's committed adultery with the wife of one of his most trusted, most loyal officers, but that's not enough. Then he goes on to commit murder, in fact, mass murder, because all of Uriah's men die there alongside of him. The worst sort of treachery, and and it doesn't stop there. Uh, For an entire year, basically, uh, David stops returning God's calls because, frankly, he doesn't want to hear what God has to say. And, and, and of course, God is the only one who can actually help David get turned around. So David just keeps on charging in the wrong direction. And those long days of guilt and and denial, they're no picnic either. You go back and and read, for example, Psalm 32, uh, verses 3 and 4. David writes, when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know, we've all heard this, uh, we've all heard this proverb before. When you're in a hole and you can't get out, rule number one is what? Stop digging. Stop digging. What we see here in 2 Samuel 11 is a perfect picture of the cycle of sin. See, sin's first line of assault is to woo us away from God. But but then the second line of assault is to settle in the occupied territory, keep us away from God because, uh, you know, we, we feel we're too ugly because of what we've done. We're too far gone. We're too guilty to come back to God, which, of course, makes us even more vulnerable to the next temptation, which only makes us feel further still away from God. It, it's, 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 it's actually what the, the, the tuna fishermen uh, on uh, Wicked Tuna, uh, one of my favorite shows, uh, Wicked Tuna, they call, this, they call this the death spiral. 
the death spiral. Uh, when, when the tuna gets hooked, um, in, in trying to get loose, the hook, as it shakes its head, the hook gets even more embedded in the fish's mouth. Well, that's when the fish, the tuna, starts just circling and circling until it finally just gets too tired to fight anymore, and that's when it's over. Next thing you know, you know, he's somebody's sushi. Uh, n- not mine, thank you very much, but, but, but uh, it, it, it's over. David in chapter 11 is basically in a spiritual death spiral. He is in a spiritual death spiral, thrashing around, bringing everybody else down with him because he won't just admit that he has swallowed this temptation hook, line, and sinker. question is why? You know, why, why in the world, why doesn't David turn around? You know, why keep driving in the wrong direction? It's clear this is not good. And that's the third observation we need to make about sin. From 2 Samuel chapter 11, sin seduces us to sin. Sin induces us to sin more. And then finally, sin confuses us. Sin confuses us into thinking that we've got everything under control. It fools us into thinking that we're in control uh, when, in fact, we are are out of control. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was in the uh, car with my grandkids. You're going, Duffy, you don't look old enough. No, I have two grandkids. And it's not funny, man. And uh, and Henry and Sadie, uh, one of them is 10 years old, the other is 12 years old. They're just a ton of fun. And anyway, we were in the car. He pulls out of the parking lot, and, and as we we're starting to drive down the street, one of the kids noticed that there was a bug on the front windshield of the car, a bug just kind of sitting there on the front windshield of the car, and, and they call me Duffy, right? When they were little, you know, when they were younger, I said, just call me His Holiness, but, but, but now I have to let them call me Duffy, and, and uh, anyway, so as we pull out, they go, hey, Duffy, you know, look at that bug. You know, we're giving him a free ride. And, and, and so I look at this bug on my windshield, staring in at us. Uh, and, and when we finally make eye contact, I think to myself, why don't you leave? Why don't you go? Why don't you fly away? You have the capacity to exit this situation, right? This is not going to end well for you. But he just sat there. He just sat there. And, 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 and then we actually pulled up onto the interstate. And so now this bug literally finds himself cruising along at 70 miles an hour. This is the fastest he has ever flown. And, 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 and me and Katie and Henry, we're talking about it. We decide maybe he, thinks, maybe he thinks this is about him. Maybe he thinks, you know, he's flying really fast. Like, like he's, he's super bug. And, and then it dawns on me, wait a minute. What if it's worse than that? You know, what if he thinks he's actually pulling our car? You know, like, like he's like, he's on the front windshield. He's just going, oh my gosh, what strength, what power, work with me, people. You know, and, and like he's on the front of this thing. And, and so then we kind of had fun thinking about that. Uh, and, and then uh, Sadie uh, turned on the windshield washer. Uh, yeah, and uh, that was the end of the story. But, but it, it is going to sound a little bit weird. But as you read through 2 Samuel chapter 11, you see it, don't you? You start to realize that in a very, very real sense, David is basically a bug on the windshield. 
He's a bug on the windshield. He, he, he's been fooled into thinking that he is completely in control of a situation that is spiraling further and further out of his control. Men and women, that is the confusion and the delusion of sin. Let, let's go back to the text. Uh, and this time I want you to trace with me the, the use of one word, just one word, uh, a seemingly innocent word. It's the verb send, S-E-N-D, the verb sin. Because by tracing this verb sin, we can actually follow uh, David's step-by-step slide into complete confusion. Let's begin at verse one. Uh, it, it starts off with this short phrase. David sent Joab. David sent, no problems yet, right? Joab's a part of David's high command. That's what kings do. They, they give orders to commanding officers. But now let's go to verse three. David sent to inquire about Bathsheba. And this time the exercise of authority is a little bit different. I mean, maybe he has the right as king to ask these kind of questions, but it sort of feels like he's, he's beginning to use his authority uh, in ways that aren't completely legit. By the time we see this word a third time in verse four, David sent and got Bathsheba so that he could take her to his bed. It's clear, something's not right here. Something, something has changed. Yes, it's true that, that David is using its power, but it's also just as apparent that he himself is in the grip of a power. There's a power that's beginning to use him. Uh, he, he thinks he's in control, but by the time we get to verse six, it's become obvious that David is in the grip of something so much bigger than himself. In fact, in verse 6, in the span of one verse, we see three times the word sent. Uh, David sent word to Uriah. Uh, then send me Uriah uh, the Hittite, he says. And then Joab sent Uriah to David. But by this point, it, you can just see it. Basically, David is a bug on the windshield. He's holding on for dear life. He's thinking he's, he's somehow still got everything under control, but it's the delusion of sin. Clearly, David is a desperate man. By verse 14, hoping that Uriah is going to be killed in battle, we read again, David sends Uriah to the front lines. And then finally, after Uriah has been killed in battle, there's been this appropriate period of mourning. In verse 27, David sent to Bathsheba a second time and marries her. Now think about that. Think about that. Chapter 11, 2 Samuel, eight times we see this phrase or a form of it, David sins. On the surface, it's a picture of a, of a, of a competent leader, right? A guy who knows how to clean up a mess. But in fact, the more we read, the deeper we look, the more we realize you know what? The king can make any choice he wants, but he's quickly discovering that even the king is not free to choose the consequences of the choices he makes. He, he, he thinks he's doing the sending, but it's actually David who is the one being delivered to a place he does not want to go. That, men and women, is the confusion and the delusion of, of sin. How many of us, even here this morning, uh, are in the grip of precisely this kind of confusion? Maybe even today. 
Maybe you're, you're, you're sampling some secret pleasure that will, will someday become an addiction. Or maybe you're flirting uh, with a relationship that will lead to sexual disobedience. Or maybe you're nursing a grudge or a resentment or a jealousy that will, that will flower into hatred. Or maybe you're living a double life that's going to split you in two. It can happen to any of us, all of us. And we tell ourselves, it's not a problem. I've got it under control. We're bugs on a windshield. The writer of Proverbs puts it like this, chapter 5, verse 23. The shadow of your sin will overtake you. You'll find yourself stumbling all over yourself in the dark. Death is the reward of an undisciplined life. Your foolish decisions trap you in a dead end. Sin seduces us to sin. Sin induces us to sin some more, and then sin confuses us to think we got everything under control. At this point, we can't help but wonder, is there any hope for David? Is there any hope for us? Right? Is there any good news in the midst of this 10-car pileup of bad news? Well, there is just this, just this. And it is very good news. David's story isn't over yet. David's story isn't over yet. There's a sequel to this movie. And in the sequel, there's a decisive shift in the action. We get a slight hint of it when we read the opening verse of 2 Samuel chapter 12, the very next chapter. Eight times in chapter 11, we read David sent, David sent, David sent, David sent. And every time we see those words, it just seems like the body count just keeps going up. But then, just when it looks like there's no hope, just when it looks like the movie's over and it's time to head for the exits, are these words. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Hear that? The Lord sent Nathan. In chapter 11, it's David sent. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And those words offer us a bright beacon of hope. Because don't forget, with all the, with all the differences between the Goliath chapter and the Bathsheba chapter, there's one striking similarity between both chapters. And we can't afford to miss it. It's this. God, God is in both stories. God is in both stories. It may not look like it yet. may not feel like it yet. But God is in both of these stories. Both the story of victory and the story of defeat. And surely, all of us here this morning, we need to hear that. We, we need to hear that because... Some of us here, you know, we may be riding high on the joy of a, of a Goliath chapter. That's fantastic. But we can all be very easily seduced into letting down our guard, forgetting that it was God at the center of that story. God who, who, who gave us that victory in the first place, not some master strategy of our own doing. But there are very, very likely also some of us here today who are in the midst of a Bathsheba chapter. Or maybe you love someone who is in the midst of a Bathsheba chapter. And you may be confused into thinking that, that you are in total control. 
Or, or maybe, maybe that God has totally lost control. We absolutely need to understand neither of those notions is true. Remember, remember, this is not primarily a story about David. It's not even primarily a story about sin. This is primarily a story about God, about God. And with God in the story, there is always hope. There is, there is always the possibility of a turnaround. There is always the possibility of forgiveness. But in good Hollywood fashion, if you want to hear that story, you have to come back next week. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for being honest with us, real life, real people, to help us to see, not trying to gloss over the pain, not trying to kind of paint it up and pretty it up, because we all of us understand that life can sometimes be very unpretty. It can be raw. We've lived it, we've seen it, we've felt it and tasted it, we've experienced it. Lord, thank you that in the midst of this, though, there is a clear truth that you're in the middle of the story. Maybe, Lord, it, it is, in fact, uh, precisely in your mind that someone is here today to hear this story on this morning from this passage of Scripture. This is because you are in the heart of the story. Lord, would you today give us honesty. Deliver us from the deceit that somehow this message this morning is meant for somebody else. We need to hear this word. We need to hear about the seduction of sin. We need to hear how it induces us to even sin more. We need to hear about it confuses us by making us think we are somehow in control of events that are out of our control. But most of all, Lord, thank you for the promise that a U-turn is possible, that a collision is avoidable, that forgiveness is still a possibility because you're in the story. We pray this, Lord, in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hi, and welcome to Postscript. I'm Lou Ann Riley, Grow Group Director, and I'm here with Duffy Robbins, one of our Bible teachers from our preaching team. We are so glad to have you back with us today. Always a pleasure. Yeah, Thank you welcome very much, back. How's your summer? Good? It's good. It's been fantastic. A lot of fun, great ministry, um, refreshing. It's been awesome. It's good. Been well, great. I certainly enjoyed uh, your sermon and the stories um, about your grandkids. That was awesome. Good. That uh, yeah. was funny. Um, and so you talked about this blockbusters, uh, these yeah. summer blockbusters. And the one we looked at today was David and Bathsheba. Um, we had a few other questions that just came in kind of specifically around that passage. Okay, um, so I'll start with those. Um, someone asked, why did God send Nathan after David's multitude of sins and not before he committed adultery? Uh, great question. I don't know. Let's close in prayer. No, I, um, I, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there are, there are millions and millions and millions of anguished parents who've asked those kind of questions over the years. Mm. 
of children who made all kinds of bad choices and paid a very, very high tuition to learn important lessons. Um, and, uh, and, and so one might ask, well, why, why, you know, why that happened then? Uh, why, why didn't God convert Chuck Colson you know, before so that he could have maybe, uh, you know, maybe had an influence on Richard Nixon and the whole geopolitical history could, those are, those are really important questions, but there are questions that, uh, that no one can honestly, he'd be presumptuous to answer. But I will say this, that I, there are two reasons why I can, I can imagine. Uh, one is that, uh, is that sometimes um, we, we, don't call out to God until we get to a really, really mm. bad place. Until we, right? We, that uh, I think as a parent, there are times when I will let my child learn lessons the hard way. Most of us who are parents know that one of the best ways to learn how to make good decisions is by making bad decisions. And so, in fact, the very, very, very protective parents are often the parents whose kids end up not learning because. Uh, in a sense, they've protected their child from an encounter with God. Mm. It's like the mother said, I'm not letting my son go near a swimming pool until he learns how to swim. Well, guess what? You don't learn how to swim without getting near a swimming pool. You know, and they go, yeah, but he might get in over his head. That's right. That's mm. right. But it's not until you are in over your head that you start thinking about the importance of swimming and keeping yourself afloat and, and, and so, uh, or the need for a lifeguard. And so I think that might be one reason why. Um, of course, we go, yeah, but what about all the, you know, what about all the trail of lives that were ruined in the process? Um, and, and, and I don't want to minimize the, the hurt of that or the tragedy of that or the danger of that. But um, that's where I think, um, and this just sounds trite to say it, and I know it, it, it in that sense, it, it can be taken so wrong. But... That's where in the, I think in the, in the governance of God, in the mind of God, there, uh, you know, he can deal with those things. Um, he can deal with those things. He can deal with death. But the hardest thing to deal with is a stubborn person who doesn't want to change their mind. Mm. The other reason um, that God didn't maybe send Nathan earlier is because, uh, is because uh, God for reasons that we can't begin to fathom exactly, wants to offer us the opportunity to freely choose. Mm -hmm. And uh, even if that means we will freely choose badly, um, it is impossible to love unless you have the option not to love. God desires our love. Uh, and, um, and so unless we have the option not to love him, then, um, then he, we don't, you know, we don't have the really the option to love him. So I think, it's a free will question. It's uh, is that God wanted David to be low enough that he finally felt like mm -hmm. I've got to look up. And of course, you look at David's life, and there are many, many times when he did look up. But I think uh, it, it's like all of us, you know, that you you uh, we need to be refreshed. We need to be renewed. We're never at a place where we can just kind of put it on autopilot. And uh, and so this, is, this was clearly a point at which David just went down to the pit, which is exactly how he describes it, you know, uh, in, in Psalm 40, I think it is. But so, yeah, that, that's, those are two possibilities. 
but the answer is only in the mind of God. Well, that's a great perspective um, to think about. So there's one other question, just talking about David's sin. And as he began, um, just this pattern that continued to unfold. Um, there's a question around that that says, wasn't the start of David's sin the staying and not going into battle like the other kings do? Yeah, I mean, in one sense, it, but it was sort of like, it would sort of be like this and say, you know, when did, uh, when did the farmer start growing corn? Did he start growing corn when he went to the store to buy the seed? Did he start growing corn before that when he sat down and said, I wonder what I'll have my crop this year? Or did he start growing corn when the corn actually came up above the ground? It, it's, it's, that's part of, that's what makes it so seductive. That's why I talked about the boa constrictor is that, you know, your head's not in, so you go, oh, you know. It, you know, it's the old uh, story of the window washer who fell from the top of the building and at the 58th floor, he said, so far, so good, you know. Is that uh, we sometimes think, oh, the, until I splatter, mm. that's, the, you know, the wage of sin is death. Mm -hmm. but, but the beginning of the fall is what uh, ultimately led to the splatter. And so, so yeah, that was, that was clearly a you know, clearly a bad decision in retrospect. And I think it was, a, but, it, but, but there's nothing necessarily sinful about, you know, not going to war. Somebody go, no, of course he didn't go to war. He's a pacifist, you know, or whatever. I don't know. So there's nothing necessarily inherently sinful about that decision. Um, uh, it, not, and, and any more than there was anything inherently sinful about standing on the roof. Um, but, but it was indicative, I think, of a David who was kind of coasting because other kings should have, any king would have been out there on the field of battle and he was kind of coasting. And uh, uh, so, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit kind of hard to say, um, you know, does, is a child born at the moment of conception or is it happening, you know, three weeks later or does it not happen until the child emerges from the womb? We don't actually meet the sin until you know, he actually sends for, you know, Bathsheba, mm -hmm. but it's conceived way Much before earlier. that. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, so we talked a lot about today just, um, and even prayed at the end for, um, you know, anything that may be starting to slide us down a path like that. Um, but the question comes around about if someone that you know or that you love is beginning to enter one of these cycles, how do you suggest, um, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, um, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, happy uh, three-step plan, you know, but, but um, one thing that I note, and, and I might add that uh, we see the same pattern in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. In that story, the father is the, is, is sort of the, the, the image of God. He's the person of God. God didn't say when the younger son said, give me everything, I'm taking off. God didn't say, no, I can't let you do that, son. You're going to make bad decisions. You're going to be with pigs. God said, the father said, okay, all right, you know. And, and again, the principle is the same. Sometimes until you're face down in pig shoe shoe, you don't realize it was a lot better to father's house. And so I think uh, one of the uh, principles that would uh, will guide someone in that situation and every parent and everybody that loves anybody has seen has been in that situation is to say um, sometimes you have to let people go to the low place as much as that hurts 
Oswald Chambers has a, uh, he has a, a, a phrase where he talks about being an amateur providence, you know, where we try to jump in and rescue people. And, and we can't be God. We can't be the Messiah. And, um, and so that's the first thing I think mm -hmm. is that we have to allow people some time to leave. Um, are, are there, again, now I'm speaking in, for parents who might be watching who have a child that they think they're having this Bathsheba chapter. Are there times when, when it's right and important to step in? Yeah, I think there are some times when as a parent I would prevent. If my, if, my, if my children are out on the highway or out on the road, you know, and a truck comes barreling down the street and, and my wife says, you know, Duffy, do something. I don't go, hey, I got to learn sometime. You know, and then I try to, you know, bend over and say, see what kids was telling, you know, daddy's trying to teach you kid. That's not a teachable moment. That, that, that's, there's no redemption possible at that point. So I might at that point say, yeah, you're going to have to jump in. But, uh, but, but I think sometimes, you know, we want to jump in before, before people are really going to learn. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nothing like, uh, there's nothing like combat to get you interested in how your rifle works. Sometimes people have to be under fire before they will really learn and listen. And so I think part of that is waiting, waiting, even though that's very, very hard. Um, <clears throat> as, some, as we observed, Nathan didn't go earlier. I don't know why, but maybe that's part of what it was mm -hmm. that David wouldn't have heard. The other, um, you know, just off the top of my head, the other comment is that, that it's interesting that uh, David went, uh, Nathan went to David. Um, we, um, we, you know, we suppose, I'm going to say we're going to have somebody come to, you know, we're going to have people come to us. We're going to wait till they go to church. Uh, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a part of it is that, uh, is that by the Spirit of God that Nathan responded to that prompting. And, and so part of what, what uh, you know, sort of shapes our response is, is God telling me to do this? And when is God telling me to do it? And do I have the willingness to go to them and say, oh, you know, I'll wait till they come to me? It's, it's, right, that's a part of it. And then the third, just off the top of my head, is that is that the way Nathan did this with David uh, was quite brilliant. Uh, he, he, he didn't use a frontal assault. He told him a story. Um, and, and if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, you know, once upon a time there was a man with sheep. Uh, that, I think, um, is also instructive that the power of story, the power of testimony, the power of saying, here's how Here's how God has worked in my life. Or here's, mm -hmm. here's, here's a story of how it works. Um, people will, could sit through 10 sermons mm. and not get it, but they hear your story, that or a story, and they mm -hmm. go, holy cow, mm -hmm. that man That's deserves it. to die. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, that man <laughs> is you, you know? So, so uh, yeah, those are three quick ideas that come to mind. Good. Um, so for our last question, we had an interesting saying come in. Um, there's an old saying that says, you can't clean a home with a dirty mop. So, Holy cow, that's brilliant. So in considering um, point three in the sermon today, um, do you find that relatable? How, how does that connect? You can't clean a home with, with a, a dirty, dirty mop. mop. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, here's, um, here's what I think 
um, this may mean. Um, well, I get the idea that you can't clean a home with a dirty mop, and if you have a dirty mop, you sweep it, everything's going to get dirtier. The third point in my message today, if you want to, if you haven't heard it already, you can listen to it online. But uh, the idea is that uh, is that sin confuses us into thinking that we're in control of events that are out of our control, and I think that means that we are the dirty mops, mm -hmm. and that uh, that how can we clean our own house? And the answer is we can't. We need a savior. Uh, David, when he prayed and praised God for his salvation in this incident said, you know, he has lifted me out of the desolate pit, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock. When you're in quicksand, you can't pull yourself out. If you're a dirty mop, you can't clean your house. You need a savior. You need Jesus. And I think, mm -hmm. I think uh, this is part of the, the, uh, the truth, the hard truth of the gospel, but it's also a wonderful truth. We can't, we can't save ourselves, but here's the wonderful fact, is God sent us a savior to save us when we could not. And uh, we don't deserve it. Um, and, we, and sometimes we're running from it, mm. but he came to pursue us. Just like the Lord sent Nathan to David, the Lord sent Jesus to us. That's awesome. What a Thank great you. connection. Okay, so you're back with us next week. Oh, that's right. That's right. Blockbuster part two. Cliffhanger, yep. leaving us on the yeah. edge of our seats. Okay, so um, thank you for being with us here today. Be Certainly back enjoyed with. it, and we're looking forward to what you bring next week. Thank you. Yes, and thank you for your questions, and thank you for joining us here for Postscript. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org slash postscript.